0: Well done, Rog. I'm sure you, when you looked at the weekly email, you thought, is this guy for real? He wants me to read 50 verses. I hope you enjoy the story. It's an epic story that we have before us in Judges chapter 9. You may have heard a preacher say that you never have to teach a child to sin. They pick it up quite naturally. In preparation for this sermon, I've been thinking about right and wrong and wondering if this is the same when children are treated unfairly. I must declare from the outset that I have done no major research on my hypothesis, only purely observation. So you're just gonna have to run with me on this one. If at this particular moment I stopped our service and I said, everyone let's stand up and let's go into Point Kids and I'm gonna give all the kids a piece of cake, but I gave one kid a larger piece of cake How do you think that's going to pan out? You know, I'm sure the majority will complain. They will protest. They would say, he or she got a bigger piece of cake than I did. And you know what? It's no different from us as adults. Just say one of your co-workers is getting paid, doing exactly the same job as you you would do. You know, you'd find that very difficult to let that pass. And it's natural that we should feel this way because we are made in the image of God who makes us aware of what's right and what's wrong. Late last year, I was in a car with a good friend of mine, and he was telling me about his ongoing experiences of being bullied at work. He worked at an aged care facility, and over a series of 18 months, he was victimized by someone that was above him. And He told me of an incident where this bully took one of the client's hands, who was suffering dementia at the time, and formed it so the middle finger was pointing up at him. He told me of another incident where he made a mistake and was slapped for it. This person would openly admit to others that, you know, we can use and abuse this one. And my friend, with laser sharp clarity, could recall another 10 of these instances As you can imagine, I was fuming for him. See, when wrong has been committed, we feel anger. We feel indignation. It's not something we can just drown out, pass over. No, it's something we rage against. This afternoon, we turn to Judges chapter 9, where a horrendous crime has been committed. Today, this passage is going to take us on a series of emotions. But specifically today, I want us to think through the emotion of anger and what role it should play in a Christian's life. I'm going to pray for us as we look at this passage together. So please join with me as I pray. Father God, thank you so much for this passage that is set before us. And we do pray that you would help us to understand it so that we may put it into our lives. This we pray in your name. Amen. So chapter 9 of Judges is different From every other chapter in Judges that we've seen so far, over the last couple of weeks, over the last couple of chapters, God's people have found themselves in a position of destitute. And as they would be oppressed, as they would be oppressed by the different people groups that would be around them. And so God would raise up a judge to rescue his people. But in chapter 9, we have no judge What we have is an internal conflict within Israel. Two weeks ago, we looked at the person of Gideon. And after serving Israel so faithfully during his time as a judge, the people come and they approach Gideon with a request. Chapter 8, verse 22, the people come to him and they say to Gideon, Hey, Gideon, why don't you rule over us? You, your son and your grandsons, because you've saved us from the hands of the Midians. Gideon's reply is, no. Why is it no? Well, verse 23, because the Lord, the Lord will rule over you. At this point, you can say, well done, Gideon, that is the right response. But as the chapter comes to an end, we will detect a great gulf between what Gideon said and what he does. I think there's three things which reveal his true motives. Firstly, in verse 25 of chapter 8, Gideon requests the people to boil down the gold in their possession so that he can make an Ehud. An Ehud is something worn by priests. But as we see in verse 27, all Israel prostitute themselves as it becomes a snare to Gideon and his household. Secondly, he has many wives. See, in the ancient world, this is typical king-like behaviour as it was a way to have peace with many different people so that you could be politically strong. And last of all, and the most pivotal clue, is the name that he gives his son, Abimelech, a son he's made with a concubine in Shechem. See, this doesn't seem like a big deal because generally we don't read too much into the meaning of names. But this wasn't the case in the ancient world. The meaning of your name was a, meant a great deal. And Abibelech's name in Hebrew means, my father is king. A name which Gideon gave him. See, this just planted the seed for Abimelech to consider being the next king of Israel after his father. Which leads us on into chapter 9. In verse 1, we have... Abimelech going to his mother's side of the family in Shechem, and he goes to his brothers with a proposal, a scheme, if you will. He says in verse two, "Hey guys, which is better to have you know all of seventy of Gideon's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood." First of all, we have to say there's nothing to suggest that Gideon's sons from Opera are going to band together to take over Shechem. There's nothing in the narrative to suggest that. It's just suspicion. It's just fear. And Bibleych is deliberately generating fear to achieve his purposes. Because fear, fear is a great motivator, isn't it? And then on top of that, he's manipulative. Remember what he says at the end of verse 2? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. It's really a comment that doesn't need to be said, does it? It's not like his brothers forgot, thinking to themselves, who's that guy? They knew exactly who he was. But the inference that is being made is that you just don't go against family, right? How could you? So the brothers of Abimelech agree to his plan. And so they go and they tell everyone in town. And everyone tends to agree that because Abimelech is related to them, it's right that we should choose him as king. After all, he is related to us. In October of uh, 2001, the national airline of Switzerland, Swissair, collapsed with a debt of 17 billion Swiss francs, resulting in 5,000 people losing their jobs. Often called the flying bank, for many years it was believed that the company was so financially solvent. But due due to their position in Europe and its ability to fly to many exotic locations. It produced great amounts of profit throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s. But with the rise of fuel costs and competition from other airlines, the company during the 2000s encountered great amounts of debt. But it was the common belief among the board of directors that Swiss Air is untouchable, that it will never be insolvent, which led many of the executives mismanaging the company and bringing it to its knees. You know, if only they looked at the accounts, they would see a different picture, a much truer picture of reality. What we see with this example of Swiss Air is no different from what is taking place in Shechem. With the rise of tribalism, we have an example of groupthink, where no one just, you know, stops and considers what is actually taking place See, it's easier just to follow on with what you've been told. And the trage- tragedy in all this is that no one thought to stop and think, well, shouldn't God be the one that rules over us? He's the one that's given us all these great victories in our past. No, the people, the people of Shechem, they wanted an earthly king. And this is just a lesson that's repeated throughout all history where people told the line of the narrative that is being fed to them. Which ultimately ends up leading people to do despicable things, despicable things that we see in verses four to seven, where the whole community fund Abimelech's plan as they donate their gold from the temple of Baal, so that Abimelech can form this gang of reckless men to go on a mission—a mission to go and kill princes—and they are successful. All of seventy of Gideon's sons dead. A perspective of this story that the writer doesn't show us is what takes place in opera, the morning after. But I'm sure we could all imagine it. All of the women, the wives of Gideon, the mother, the mothers of these sons, going to that large stone to collect their dead. It's a tragedy. See, to be a mother is a tiresome job in which you spend years of your life nourishing and fostering your children this is why we have days like today to recognize mothers and their efforts so what a tragedy it is to lose your child to have your child die before you this is why it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong that anyone could be so bloodthirsty and greedy and god is watching he's watching his creatures rebel against him And he will bring his justice. And you see a glimmer of hope in this story. With Jotham, Gideon's youngest son, who hides away from the bloodshed. And he survives. And in verse 7, he does something really brave. Instead of running away from Oprah, running away from Shechem, he goes to Shechem. He climbs Mount Gezeren, which is four Ks. From Shechem. And he positions himself in the perfect place so that he can be heard and seen but never touched. And he speaks as a prophet over the town of Shechem. He says to them, One day the trees, for some reason in this analogy, the Shechemites, they're trees. I don't understand why, but you're just going to have to roll with it. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. And they approach three potential candidates. The first is an olive tree. The second is a fig tree. The third is a grapevine. We can immediately notice that these candidates, they're good candidates. They would be the type of king that, kings that would give back to the community. They're the trees that can, you can depend upon to produce oil and fruit and wine. But their answers are identical. See, they would rather be someone that gives back than being a king who takes. So in desperation, the people ask a bramble tree that is unpredictable, only really good for one thing, and that's shelter, to be their king. That bramble tree is Abimelech. And at this point, you could give the Shechemites... The benefit of the doubt. You know, you could sympathise with them. I'm sure they just got caught up in the spin and peer pressure to go along with the tide. But what Jotham exposes with his fable is that the people were wanting their desires fulfilled as much as Abimelech wanted his desires to be filled as king. They wanted a king just as much as Abimelech wanted to be a king. He finishes his fable with a short statement and he asks three rhetorical questions in verse 16. He says this, Have you acted honourably and in good faith by making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to Jeroboam, Gideon and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? The answer is no. No, they haven't. Jotham even concedes that if you had done the right thing, well, may Abimelech be your joy, and may you be his too. But because you didn't, verse 20, that fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, you and the citizens of Shechem and Beth Mello. You know, from a distance, from our perspective, we could easily poke holes in the Shechem way of thinking. But to be honest, there are many doctrines that creep up on us that our world throws in our face, that we're asked to believe. And sometimes we do go along with it, don't we? A couple of weeks ago, I was in a conversation with some people and the topic of religion came up. And one of the guys that was speaking said, religion should never be spoken about. See, there's a great irony in his comment as he's really doing what he's wanting to condemn. But behind his illustration is a teaching point. See, it's fine to have your faith, but your faith should always be private and never public, because to proclaim your religion will only, well, that will cause controversy. It will only cause division. It will only be harmful to our society. Brothers and sisters, we need to watch ourselves that we don't think the way the world asks us to think. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says this, do not conform to the patterns of of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because, truth be known, if we aren't perceptive in reading the word of God, then we could easily just toe the line, just like these Shechemites. See, we need to be brave enough to stick to our convictions, even when it's unpopular. But our story moves on. And I wonder if Jotham, after Jotham proclaimed his warning, whether the people of Shechem thought anything of it. As we see in verses 22 and 23, three years had passed and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. See, it's amazing how little God has to do to bring about his retribution. Even though justice hasn't prevailed yet, verses 23 and 24 is the turning of the tide that indicates that Jotham's prophecy will probably come true. It says this, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Robberal's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him murder his brothers. In verse 26, we get the introduction of a new character to our story. Gaal, son of Ebed, who is the descendant of Haman, the founder of the city, he and his descendants are on the outskirts of the city and in the fields they come across the citizens of Shechem. They're in Shechem at this time of year for the festival that the city is having for their God. And the festival, it's just really a big boozer where everyone gets drunk. And while they're feasting and eating in the temple of their God, they're cursing their king, which gives Gaul an idea See, God, he's probably got a bit of wine in his system. And he makes this big claim. He makes a boast. He says, who's ambivalent? And why should we Shachemites be subjected to him? Isn't he Jeroboam's son? I love that. Isn't he Jeroboam's son? You mean, you're talking about Gideon, the guy that saved Israel? Isn't he Jeroboam's son? Isn't he Zebul's deputy? Zebul, who is a, another character in the story and is... Shechem's governor and deputy to Abimelech, hears Gaul secretly and sends a message to Abimelech. The memo to the king is, suit up, Gaal and his men need to be put to the sword. And in the morning when Gaul has kind of woken up from his drunken slumber to take down Abimelech, he notices that he's surrounded. Verse 34 says that Abimelech and all his troops set out by night, took up concealed positions near Shechem in four companies. Abimelech did this because that's what his father used to do. And when morning came, Gaul noticed that the mountains were streaming with men. In desperation, he leads out the citizens of Shechem to fight Abimelech. But Abimelech chases him down all the way to the entrance of the city gate, and many people were killed. Zabul drove Gal and his clan out of Shechem. And that ends the battle. Game over. Everything's done. And you would think that, wouldn't you? You'd think that the battle is finished. It seems like Abimelech has won. But it's the next day when the citizens of Shechem will feel the full brunt of God's judgment. Presumably the people go out of the city to collect their dead, and Abimelech sees this opportunity and he executes. He sets an ambush where two of his companies attack those in the fields and strike them down. Verse 44 states this All that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he captured it and he killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and he scattered salt over it. Despite the onslaught, there is still a small remnant of citizens who survive and they enter a stronghold, the temple of Elbereth. It's Mbimelech's next move where we see Jotham's words ring true. With an axe in one hand, he marches up Mount Zelmon to cut down branches and then he orders everyone in his army to do the same. With now a stockpile of branches leaning against the stronghold, I'm sure that the men and the women and the children inside, and knew exactly what was going to take place next. The tower was going to go up in flames, killing everyone inside. With the city completely obliterated, and Bimelech continues to be uncontrolled, reminiscent of any heartless dictator, he sets his sights on the Tower of Threbrez, where in verses 50 and 55 he captures it and he besieges it. He must have thought this is deja vu when the people once again retreat to a strong tower where Mbimelech had the same strategy in mind. Fire. But as he attempts to light up, light it up in flames, a millstone for a woman is dropped and he is killed. By the end of the story, you get the impression that Mbimelech can't be stopped, that he's unstoppable. But in the end, his mission halts pretty quickly. And the irony shouldn't be lost on us. The great king is killed by a woman. Something that wouldn't be surprising to God is humiliating to Mbimelech and his legacy. See, I love that the writer includes this fact. The very thing that he didn't want anyone to know is preserved in scripture forever. That he's killed by a woman. That's quite comical, really, isn't it? The other irony is that the king is killed by a stone. The very thing that he killed Gideon's sons on was the weapon that was killed, that killed him. And friends, we can't miss the moral of this story. God will always repay wickedness. The very point the writer makes in verses 57 and 58. God will have his justice. And he doesn't need anyone's help to do this for him. See, with the smallest action coming from his hand, God can change a series of events that will occur and everything will follow the script. And you know what? We should rejoice that the, the Mbimelechs of this world get their just deserts. See, it gives us hope that all the unjust things that we see around us will be resolved. But, you know, I'm guessing that there may be some of us who are kind of unsatisfied with that ending. You may be seeing too much of the world that makes you sceptical that God can still bring any real justice. where people seem to get away with so many atrocities without any penalty. The psalmist in Psalm 73 has this very same thought in mind, He said that his feet have almost slipped, that he's almost given up that God could bring true justice, as all he notices was the wicked prospering. But it wasn't until he entered the sanctuary of his God that he saw that the wicked were actually, they're on slippery ground, that they will be cast down to ruin, that they will be completely swept away. Friends, let today's story be a reminder that justice will come you know, and it may be not come in our lifetime, but it will definitely come in the future when the Lord Jesus returns. When we review the story, we see pretty clearly and pretty easily why Bimelech turned out the way that he did. It's because he believed his own hype. He believed that he was his father's chosen king. He believed that he would be the best to serve Israel rather than his 70 brothers. That in fact, he's the best thing going around. So when the citizens of Shechem thought something different and cursed Abimelech, he chose to preserve the hype that he believed in rather than seeing things differently. And it's from this perspective that we aren't too different from Abimelech. As people, we easily believe the hype that we can manufacture about ourselves. Here's a question, what about if someone were to accuse you of something that is contrary to the reputation that you have built yourself upon, that they attack the very core of your identity? How do you react to that? How would you react to that scenario? One of my uh, favourite television shows is uh, "Grown and Transfer. I love to see the different ways people go about marketing and selling a product. The host of the show is a comedian named Will Anderson. They filmed the show in front of a live audience. And this particular week, the audience were, well, they're not re- they weren't really in a funny type of mood. They weren't laughing at Will's jokes. So Will started to abuse the audience. One room- woman replied to him, We aren't laughing at your jokes because you're not funny see the issue is that will anderson believed the hype about himself he believed that he was funny and it's understandable that he believes this he is a successful comedian but instead of thinking that he has the issue he blamed his audience the next morning on radio Will continued his tirade, continuing to blame the audience for not laughing at his jokes, calling them the worst audience he's ever come across. Friends, I want you to hear the words of Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to a people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister Will be subject to judgment. So I ask you again, in the inner chambers of your heart, what do you say to yourself when someone points out something that goes against your identity? Do you rage? Do you get angry? Do you accuse other people of being a bad audience? Are you humble enough to think differently? See, at this level, we're no different from the Will Andersons of this world. We're no different from Abimelech. Both these men are subject to judgment. We are subject to judgment for the things that we think. And this isn't just offensive to the people we've thought that about. It's offensive to the God who has made us and has made them. The God who is Lord of all things, hears our thoughts and cares for all people who loves all people. So a false accusation against someone isn't just a sin against another person, but it's a sin first and foremost against God. So what does God do with the people that are so deserving of his anger? Well, this is where I would love you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. It's a bit of a famous passage. We read it a fair bit. And it's a comforting passage. It says this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In verse 2, we have this expression that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice of our sins. In other versions, this expression is translated as propitiation, which I think is a better translation. At this moment, I know you're probably all thinking, Ben, it's five o'clock and you're about to talk to me about propitiation. What does that even mean? Well, most of the time when the Bible says a big word, it's normally got a very simple explanation behind it. And propitiation simply means to appease someone's anger. And I will put it to you this afternoon That it's impossible for us as human beings to properly and to fully propitiate someone's anger. If I could take a stereotype from popular culture of a husband doing something wrong to his wife. And so what does he do? He goes to the shops and he purchases some flowers to give his wife so that her anger may be appeased. I ask you, what is wrong with that example? Why doesn't that work? It doesn't work because it doesn't deal with the hurt that the wife is experiencing. This is why our attempts at appeasing someone's anger never works. Don't get me wrong, it can work for a time. But it's likely that she may recall that incident again and conjure up the hurt that she may have experienced from that event. So how does God appease the anger that we deserve? Like I said, it's impossible for humans to properly and fully appease someone's anger. But what is impossible with man isn't impossible with God. God appeases his anger through his Son. That's why John can say that we have an advocate with the Father, one that can stand in our defence, so the anger that we should receive actually gets diverted to Jesus, who takes our punishment. That's how his anger is appeased. I'm going to finish tonight's sermon with thinking through how anger should play out in our lives, our Christian lives. And the Bible is pretty quick to condemn anger. The type of anger that the Bible condemns is the type that we've explored through Judges chapter 9. The type that is false and rash and is based on the preservation of our own identity. And this type of anger is referenced quite frequently in the epistles and even in some proverbs in the Old Testament. But I actually think it's okay to be angry in the right circumstances, for the right cause. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27 says this. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. As you heard, it's possible to be angry and not to sin. But Paul exhorts us not to stay in that state because to stay in that state is to believe that, well, you're clearly in the right. To stay in that state is actually to give the devil a foothold. But before the sun goes down, we should seek reconciliation and it should be a matter of urgency. We should seek it to straighten the ledger with our neighbour quickly. And I think that's the case because it's a more fitting way to resolve a dispute, because it it upholds the worth of that person that has upset you. It gets to the facts of the issue rather than you assuming that you know what has exactly happened. And if my experience is anything to go by, you'll feel your anger has been greatly appeased. So I end tonight's sermon with this. Let's be a people who speak honestly and openly with each other. And let us do this quickly. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are a God who is slow to anger towards us. And Father, we do pray that we would be slow to anger to each other as we seek reconciliation from each other. We pray that this is a fitting way that we should go about resolving conflict and resolving our anger.